You're listening to the latest preaching from Brixham Community Church. Welcome to um, session five of Prayers of the Righteous. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Do we believe it? Yeah. We do. That's why we're here. We're going to be praying in a short moment. And we've been looking at various prayers of various righteous people in the Bible. And today I wanted to um, take a snapshot of the book of Isaiah and one little part in Isaiah 64 where Isaiah prays this prayer rend the heavens so let's start by reading that and we'll pull out a few thoughts and then we'll pray so it says in Isaiah 64 oh that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains would tremble before you as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind our sins sweep us away. Verse 7. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are, your, we are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look upon us, we pray. For we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become a wasteland. Even Zion is a wasteland. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple, where our ancestors praised you, has been burned with fire. And all that we treasured lies in ruins. After all this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? And I just decided to stop there. So I thought it was important just to see some of the context of what was happening in Isaiah's day, thinking about 700 BC, and the trouble that Isaiah saw his beloved nation in. And the focus tonight, though, is this concept of praying for God to rend the heavens. There's an increasing number of us at BCC, I feel um, an increasing number, praying for revival in our town and praying for our nation. We pray for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church, for God to come in power, for God to rend the heavens. And so I just wanted to think about what we could learn from this particular passage and some ideas that might come as we are praying for God to do something that we've never seen him do before. The first thing I want to just think about was the idea of revival and the, and the Bible. Um, 
Revival's not a particularly biblical word. We do have uh, verses, I think, I haven't written this down, I think around about Psalm 85, David asks that God would revive us again. And um, there is a Hebrew word, but it just actually means um, bring to life. It's nothing particularly deep and meaningful. So the word revival is something more that we've developed in our English language, I'd say, Scholars may choose to disagree. I didn't really research it that much, but there's not loads of reference to the word revival. Um, so it'd be interesting to just to define what I mean when I think of revival. And I don't want to study past models like the Welsh, uh, past examples as models like the Welsh revival or the revival in the Hebrides, which Paul often refers to, um, which they're inspiring stories and we can learn from them and be inspired. But let's base our doctrine on the word of God uh, and, and just look at this passage and, and maybe a few others in the Bible. Um, and we'll just start by what do I mean when I talk about revival? Well, back to verse one of our passage today. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. It's as if God's going to tear the skies open. And I know it's kind of um, a wrong picture in some ways just to think of God as only in heaven and, and maybe a little bit Old Testament to think of him as in heaven and and sort of distant from us, and he has to tear the skies open. But I still like the image that there is a God in heaven. There is a God who could make himself far more present in our reality. He can't be more present because he's omnipresent, but our experience of his presence can be far greater. And so I feel like these words are sort of um, poetic in many ways, but let's just imagine a God in heaven tearing the skies wide open, manifesting his presence and power so clearly that it's undeniable to all who witnessed it. And it kind of reminds me of what happened on the day of Pentecost. And we know Pentecost was in some senses a one-off event, but it's also a continuous experience for Pentecostal Christians. But um, if I can just read the beginning of Acts chapter 2 and think of that as an example of what it, what it might look like if God did an amazing work um, in the form of a revival. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. And that was just the beginning of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It didn't stop there. We keep reading through Acts and just one more dip into chapter 4 and verse 31. It says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. And this is the kind of thing I imagine when I think of revival. I imagine God making his presence more and more known amongst his church first and foremost and that's spilling out into the streets as it did on the day of Pentecost and affecting the people around us and the ripple effects going beyond our town that for me is is more than just we pray for answered prayer and we're we're um we're grateful and and thankful when we see God answer prayers and we pray for healing and we're grateful when people get better but this is something different this is something extraordinary this is something where God has decided to move in a mighty way and that's what I'm praying for for our town so if we're to pray for revival as as I've sort of brought out of those two little bits of the bible let's pray that God would rend the heavens over our town but let's let's get back to the passage and ask why did Isaiah pray this prayer so um, I've 
put out a few little notes for you. I'm on that second point now. Why did he pray that prayer? What's the context here? And hopefully it's not reading too much into it. If we look at the first verse again, and it says, why does God want, sorry, why does Isaiah want God to rend the heavens and come down? It is so that the mountains would tremble before you and uh, before God. And I wonder if it was only physical mountains or if, if we're allowed to interpret po- poetically or symbolically um, what's being mentioned here, that there were certain mountains that Isaiah wanted God to cause to tremble. If we think of mountains as obstacles, if we think of, as, of things in the way, um, we want to see God's help to cause those mountains to tremble. And sometimes we're faced with mountains in our own lives and in our own church and we see the mountain and we think, there is no way around this mountain in my lifetime. It's huge. There's no way over this mountain. It's ridiculous. There's not even a ski lift. There's no way I can get up that cliff face. But if God were to cause the mountains to tremble, then we would be able to do anything in his strength. Certainly in 700 BC, Isaiah saw lots of obstacles that we've just read about in the passage. When we pray for the revival, let's think of some of the obstacles that we know of and just pray that God would cause those mountains to tremble. Remember, Jesus said you only need faith the size of a mustard seed. Paul and I prayed for somebody last week who said, um, before we met um, with this person, they said, I haven't actually, have you got faith for me to be healed? Because I haven't got much faith. <laughs> and I said, you only need faith the size of a mustard seed. And uh, we're praying for a mighty move of God in that person's life. And um, let's not let the enemy convince us that, well, you're not going to see results because you haven't got enough faith. Just take, you, you've got faith because you're a Christian. You used, you exercised faith to become to, to believe in Jesus, to follow him. So you do have some faith. And uh, let's not worry that we haven't got enough faith because it only takes that little bit of a move and God can cause mountains to tremble. So the first thing, reason Isaiah prayed this prayer was mountains. The second one was sinfulness. If you look up at the passage again into verse 5, you'll see um, sin angers God. And we know that Anyway, we, we like to think of God as a loving Heavenly Father, but sin does make him angry. I love my kids. I couldn't love them any more than I do. But when they do something ridiculous or wrong or rebellious or whatever, not that it happens very often, it does make me angry. I'm just annoyed with them for what they've done. And how much more a holy and righteous, sinless, perfect, awesome God when his creation gets it wrong and messes it up. Sin does anger God it says in verse 5 you come to the help of those who gladly do right who remember your ways but when we continued to sin against them that is against God's ways you were angry how then can we be saved so why is Isaiah praying this prayer he's praying this prayer because the nation has turned against God and then in verse 6 all of us all of us have become like one who's unclean and when you're in that state even your righteous acts, they're just distasteful to God. They, they're like filthy rags and we shrivel up like a leaf. It's quite strong imagery. And sometimes when we've got sin in our... Even as Christians, 
when we've got sin in our life or we're deliberately rebelling against God, we've given our life to Jesus, but there's a, if you, maybe, I don't know, maybe think in terms of a pie chart and you've, you've given God most of your life, but there's this one area that you've not surrendered and you, you're just committing a sin in that area. When you try and do something good to please God, he, it's, it's like you can't get past the fact that, yeah, but you're not, you, you're not going to make up for what you've not surrendered to me. We need to surrender our whole selves to him. So we could be saved from the eternal consequences of sin. We could be going to heaven, but there are still consequences on earth if we commit sin. If, I mean, forgetting God for the moment in the, in, the, in the equation, I'm going to heaven, I've given my life to Jesus, but if I commit murder, I've, there's still consequences on earth. But in the same way, if I do something wrong, just because I'm forgiven and that God is faithful to forgive for, to all those who repent, there's still going to be ramifications to what I've done and need to get right with God. And I would just say, if, if you've offended him, you need to put it right with him. If there's something in your heart, even now as I'm speaking, where you, you feel like, or maybe someone listening online who's listening and they, they just feel like, you know, I, I love the Lord, but I know I'm doing this thing that I, it's just a habit I can't break or it's a thing that I... I know I shouldn't do, or there's a thing I should be doing that I'm not doing. I've just got to put this right with God. And you're going to repent, you're going to tell God you're sorry, but you're going to do something about it. You're going to um, take action to, to wipe that sin out of your life. And I believe that that's why, partly why Isaiah wanted to pray this prayer, because he was aware that the sinfulness of the nation, God's people, Israel, their sinfulness had caused a barrier between God and them. There was no way God was going to move on their behalf while their hearts weren't right with him don't go to the other extreme though and feel guilty that oh no i'm just full of sin and god's never going to help me um i've seen that too much in christianity as well i'm sure if you've been in the christian walk as um some of you longer than i have but i've been in church all my life i've seen both extremes where on the one extreme you've got people who raise their hands in worship but then they go out and their lifestyle doesn't match and I've also, so there's that extreme where you're living a life of sin, but you're kind of put, putting up a facade of, of, of living a good Christian life. And I'm sure some of those people, most of those people, maybe they're, they're going to heaven and they've, they're trusting the Lord, but there's just something they've not put right. And they kind of brush it off and even make excuses for it. Or they'll go to... Um, a different church where they think that thing's okay you know or they'll, they'll they'll just gravitate towards christians that comfort them and say well don't worry god's not too worried about that is it really sin is that is that idea of sin out of date and all that sort of thing on one end of the s scale so you've got christians who are what some people call carnal christians they're living the life um that they shouldn't be living but they're christians on the other end of the scale and this is what i want to warn against as well is people who just feel guilty all the time and the, the, it's as if the enemy keeps reminding them of sins that have been forgiven and they're trying to be good and trying too hard, I would say. Um, and, and so you've got the, the complete opposite extreme where you just feel like you, you're saying sorry all the time for things um, that God has forgiven. And, um, and some people have said, you know, you say sorry to God about a certain sin and he goes, what sin? Because he's remembered it no more. And um, let's not go that far. He is faithful to forgive. But the point for tonight is Isaiah was aware of sinfulness being a barrier to revival and that's why he was praying that God would rend the heavens and come down the, the next point was prayerlessness 
prayerlessness. We've got, he prayed the prayer because of mountains, he prayed the prayer because of sinlessness, and now we've got, he prayed the prayer because of prayerlessness. We find that in verse 7. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. No one calls on your name. Lord, may that never be true of our church or the churches in our town. May we continually call on your name. And as I was reading this again uh, this afternoon, I noticed that word strives. And sometimes we've just got to strive to lay hold of God. It is striving to seek God's face. It doesn't always come easy, but that's what we've got to do sometimes. We've got to get on our knees. We've got to um, in fact, Oswald J. J. Smith, a, a, a book who's a, a guy whose book I've, I shouldn't call him a guy, um, a minister from the past who saw great revival, who, and, and some of the writings that I've read, he, he refers to this kind of prayer as soul travail. He says, if you want to see revival, you've got to go through soul travail, and it sounds really, really unappealing, but he he's saying just as there is pain in natural childbirth for some of the people you want to see saved you've got to get on your knees for those people and, and strive to lay hold of God um, for those people now that might not always be the case and I know that we we have a spirit of freedom and, and and lightness and everything but sometimes God gives you a real burden for someone and we just strive in prayer for that person um, so Isaiah was praying this prayer because of prayerlessness and then finally on this section before we wind up, um, God's dwelling place was a wasteland. And we now know that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. Collectively, the church is God's temple, but also individually we are walking temples of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 10 of today's passage, it says, Your sacred cities have become a wasteland. How heartbreaking must that have been for the prophet who loved the Lord? Even Zion is a wasteland, Jerusalem a desolation, our holy and glorious temple where our ancestors praised you has been burned with fire. May this never be true of our churches. And I I look at the last section of that verse 11 and it says, all that we treasured lies in ruins. And I almost wonder if sometimes that's the starting point that causes the rot to set in the things that we treasure are the things we need to continue to treasure as a church we believe that we should treasure the values that we are here to love God to love people and to make disciples that's what we're about love God love people make disciples lots of churches have sort of values that they espouse and they talk about but those three things that's our mission in 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 life and if we don't treasure those and we get distracted by other things that's where the disaster starts and all that we treasure lies in ruins we need to keep hold of those things our mission has never changed and that's what we treasure and um, I think if we treasure those things and we go after those things of loving God through the way we worship through the way we live our lives of loving one another um, and and that, that's how the, the world gets to know who we are, that by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. Um, and 
love God, love people, and making disciples, if we, if we go after those three, we won't see God's dwelling place as a wasteland, but we'll see it grow. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm believing for. The final point is um, just some ideas I had uh, as I read this, that they won't be ex- exhaustive. This is not a, a deep theological study. This is just some ideas that came to me um, as I looked at this and also looking at Acts 2 as well. Um, requirements for revival. Now, we, whatever God does is up to God. So I'm going to tell you now, the last one is God's sovereign will. You can see I've got points there. And the last one there, God's sovereign will. Um, because we can't conjure up revival, we can't manufacture revival with the right systems and processes. Um, so everything that happens, as far as God's move, is because God has chosen in his sovereign will to move. But there are certain things that will stop him doing that, and there are certain things we need to get right, so that when God's ready to, to move on our town, we're ready as well. And the first one is unity. Mark's going to be preaching on Sunday, he's going to be finishing his talk on on unity i felt it was an important thing to talk about when i was talking earlier in the year about the devil's playbook um, and i used the idea of division as one of the devil's tricks if you like to get us uh, to be ineffective for the kingdom of god in acts chapter 2 they were all together in one place when the holy spirit moved jesus said people would recognize us for our love for one another we must strive to keep the bond of peace We need to forgive one another. Verses 6 and 9 of our passage deal with Israel as a collective entity. It says, all of us have become like one who's unclean. And it says in verse 9, look upon us as we pray, for we are all your people. God sees us together and he wants to see us together. He wants to deal with his family as a family unit. He He hates physical families breaking up. He invented family. It's part of his design. His community is part of his design. And um, disunity is, is of the enemy and we have to strive to keep that bond of peace, whatever it takes, whether it means saying sorry, whether it means working at it, whether it means praying things through, we need to push for unity. And that's not just within our church, although that's primarily what I'm thinking of, but we're thinking of unity with other churches. Any church that believes the Bible and proclaims the name of Jesus, we want to be in complete harmony we might not agree with them theologically on every issue but as far as those three things of loving God loving people and making disciples we want to work with them not against other churches the second one requirements for revival is repentance we've already talked about sinfulness in the passage um, in my last section and I would just ask is God asking us to amend our ways Is is God asking me to amend any of my ways how is he challenging you today not someone else that's between them and God but are there any things that we want to repent of and again we can go too far with that and I've prayed with people who've said I, I think I, I want you to pray for me because I'm ill but um, I just think I'm ill because I haven't repented of all these sins and I'm just thinking well actually I, I really don't think that's the reason you're ill and let's not get too far down the guilt thing of repentance but as the Holy Spirit prompts and you just sense, no, Lord, I know I've got to bring this to you. And you know that the Lord always deals with you in a way that is loving and in keeping with his character. And he loves his children. But he does discipline those he loves. Is the Lord calling us to turn from anything that we shouldn't be doing.
The third one is fervent prayer. Fervent prayer. Isaiah prayed that God would rend the heavens. They're strong words. Rip the heavens open. And even the first words, oh, that you would. They're not half-hearted. We need to pray for revival. We need to pray for our neighbours, for our family, for our friends who don't know Jesus. And we need to pray in all sincerity. And for some of us, including myself, the first prayer is to ask God to give us the desire. Because sometimes we just don't have that. We don't have those tears for the lost that that Jesus has. In Acts 4, that prayer that I talked about very briefly where the whole house was shaken and the people were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. It was after prayer. So let's pray for boldness. Let's pray for the Holy Spirit to continue to fill you with his power and his presence. Let's pray for unity. Let's pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then finally, because I've already done the last one, second to last though, faith. We must believe that revival is possible. Remember verse 1 asks God to cause mountains to tremble. Or maybe the first mountain is the mountain of disbelief. So we're asking God to, to, we're using our mustard seed of faith to ask God to give us more faith. Isaiah prayed in faith. I think there's, you, you see, I think we see faith in verse 8 where it says, yet you, Lord, are our Father. There's a yet, because he's saying how bleak the picture is, but he's saying yet, but, however, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Let's bring our mustard seed-sized faith and ask the Lord to help us to pray in faith. So we've talked about unity, repentance, fervent prayer, faith and God's sovereign will. God has has the first and last word on everything. He also has a clear picture of timing and our timing is not like his. And we all know that in our heads. It's very hard to live that out and just kind of be patient. But if we look at verse 4 last time since ancient times no one has heard no ear has perceived no eye has seen any god besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him i think there's people in this room that have been praying for brixham longer than i probably heard of brixham and there's this sense of sometimes we feel like you know i've I've prayed for revival so much that I just, what's the point? And we feel like giving up. But God hasn't changed and he still has a will that no one would perish. And I just believe that we need to continue to pray and ask God to move in this town. And we've been praying for our nation. We know there's an election tomorrow and we know that there's all sorts of things going on in our nation that weren't going on 50 years ago. There's all sorts of laws passed that weren't passed 40, 50 years ago. And the nation, spiritually, is in jeopardy. The nation is very unhealthy, spiritually. And we need to pray. We need to pray for our nation. I want us to do that tonight. I want us to pray for our town and for our nation. If you'd like to close your eyes, I just want to lead you in a few thoughts in a in sort of prayerful moment. Thank you.
Let's just close our eyes. And I'd like us to think about our, our local church, our home church. You might want to picture some people in it. You might want to picture people you see over coffee or on a Sunday morning or during the week. I want you to imagine our church so moved by the Holy Spirit that we are all more on fire for God than ever before. Imagine a new love for God and his people spreading across all God's people in our town, whatever church they belong to. Picture every Christian driven to spend more time in his word out of genuine, spirit-led, intense desire for intimacy with God. Imagine the same Christians working in unity, going out into a needy world to proclaim the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. And picture the Spirit being so at work in the lives of the lost that Christians are asked, what must I do to be saved? Imagine being asked that question yourself and having no hesitation in answering with Spirit-led conviction and clarity. Imagine the ripple effects causing nations to tremble. That's a lot of ripple effects from a small town. Dare you pray for such a move of the Holy Spirit? Because it starts with people like us. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit Brixham.church.